Hello everyone, and welcome to Fool's Guide to the Occult. I'm your ghost of a host, Hector, and today we are going to be talking about invoking. Uh, this originally started out as a dedicated episode on drawing down the moon, a ritual within Wicca. But since information on that topic is pretty limited, it turned into an episode about invoking in general. So we're going to cover some of the basics. We aren't going to just talk about Wicca. We're going to cover ceremonial magic. Uh, we'll talk a bit about uh, what I understand of uh, voodoo. And of course, near the end of the episode, we'll talk about chaos magic. This is kind of a really broad, or not really a broad, but a large topic that has a tendency to mean some different things to different people. So to get started out, we're just going to define what we mean a little bit. According to the Watkins Dictionary of Magic by Neville Drury, invocation is the act of invoking or summoning an angel or deity uh, for positive or beneficial purposes. Magical invocations take place within the magic circle, which is regarded within the ritual as a sacred space, a space distinct from profane, unsanctified territory, which lies outside of it. Uh, the idea is to call a spirit into oneself as opposed to evoking or conjuring or summoning, uh, which is to, to summon a spirit into the space outside of the magic circle uh, within a ceremonial magic context, this is done using the triangle of art, and invoking uh, done properly can lead to uh, spiritual uh, spirit possession, which is uh, common in voodoo as well as uh, the Wiccan drawing down the moon ritual. But it's m important to point out that in some cases, systems will call for invoking the name of X, where X is the entity you desire to work with, these situations are much more like evoking rather than invoking. What they're meaning is call upon this thing, call it to be here, not call it to be within you. Today, we're specifically talking about drawing something into yourself. So this can be seen in various examples of spells uh, outlined in ancient Egyptian divination uh, and magic by Eleanor L. Harris of which uh, the invocation of Set from the Leiden papyrus uh, specifically comes to mind. Um, but the whole process essentially begins with calling out to something, evoking it, asking it to be present, building a relationship with it, being respectful, and uh, then asking it to, or part of it to, uh, reside within you. So you should always be polite. You know, you don't want to be all demanding. Besides, think of how another person might behave if you phoned them up out of the blue and started making demands, right? Now imagine that person is far more powerful than you. Um, in fact, not a person at all. Um, maybe they're an ifrit. Sounds like a recipe for disaster, right? So be humble. All right, the first step in really all of this is safety first. Okay, so do your homework, I would say, is always number one. Um, the first step to safe practice, uh, whatever it is you're doing, is knowing what you're getting yourself into before uh, you get yourself into it. Um, this rule applies to operating heavy machinery, dropping acid, traveling abroad, invoking, and many, many other things. So the, the first thing is first, be prepared, study up, and before you get started, be sure you have everything you could possibly need on hand. Double check before you begin.
If you're working with a historically based entity, you should familiarize yourself with as much of its lore and imagery and symbolism as you can. This uh, will help you understand what the entity is really all about if you want to work with them and uh, you basically right off the bat begin to establish a respectful relationship with them. Uh, this can serve a dual purpose. It's generally understood that all spirits can lie. And um, the more you know about who you are supposed to be working with, the harder it will be for them either to falsify information or for an imposter to kind of slip in and pretend to be the thing that you are trying to work with. Having a good groundwork in banishing is also important. The act of banishing before a ritual mentally prepares a practitioner to conduct magical work um, or cleansing a space or a person before and after the working is also really important. Uh, chances are you have already developed some of your own methods of doing this. If you haven't, uh, please go back to earlier episodes of this show and practice uh, cleansing, banishing, grounding, centering, protection, and all the other uh, important types of rituals there. If you're anything more than an armchair occultist, invoking is not something you should be dabbling with. It's a, a serious undertaking that requires serious preparation, intention, and follow-through. I know we've talked about a few banishing and protection methods in the past, but I always like to offer up new tools for your kit now and then. Um, but before we go um, get into that, I want to make a point about protection circles. So in some cases, a strong protection spell or ward may prevent you from being successful in invocation or even evocation in the first place. Uh, in some cases, it might be more useful to evoke protective entities to help you with your work rather than weave spells and charms to protect you. That said, let us take a look at um, what Peter J. Carroll has to say about exorcism. And you can find the full text on page 136 of Libra Null and Psychonaut, but here's the general breakdown. According to Peter J. Carroll, there are two categories. One, the exorcism of places and objects. And two, the exorcism of living beings, you, your mom, your bunny rabbit, whatever. So beneath that, we have what he says about the exorcism of living beings. He says, uh, when it comes to exorcism of people, consider not all cases are caused by external entities. Carol is quick to point out we're quite capable of manufacturing our own demons. Um, he also says and uh, makes a, a note that exorcism of people um, exhibiting madness should only be done in such cases where the individual believes in earnest that they are possessed or being controlled by an external force. And again, only if this has started relatively recently, as the longer um, these forms of psychosis have had to take root, uh, the more difficult it'll be to root them out using uh, this sort of psychological method, um, which is essentially a form of shock or horror therapy. The historical method of exorcism is really um, an early method of uh, religious-based psychotherapy in which an exorcist attempts to displace a negative obsession in the subject with a larger, more powerful obsession, which typically is... Um, you know, using holy symbols like a, a god or an angel that the subject reveres or 
fears, which is an important point. This style will not work on an atheist, right? If they, if you don't believe in anything, um, it's not going to work. Then again, they also don't believe they would be controlled by a external entity if they don't believe in that. Carol addresses that situation later on in this particular essay. I would highly recommend reading that part on your own. I'm not going to go cover it because, you know, it isn't really relevant to the work that we're doing at hand. And of course, I don't want to cover too much of Carol's work. Um, but I think he makes some really good points there within that. If you think of it in sort of the reverse, it'll help illuminate the process of invoking as well as some general ritual work. It's noteworthy, though, that Carol points out that all symbolism, words, actions, uh, etc. relate to the deity um, being used to displace the obsession and are helpful in the ritual. So use everything you can that that's relevant. They heighten the energy, if not specifically spiritual energy, then at least mental energy and a uh, symbolic show of physically removing the demon is is sometimes uh, incredibly useful. There's a portion of this section where he also discusses the use of certain mental states that can result in possession to breed familiars and entities. This is a fascinating part of that that we'll really have to come back to uh, when we do an episode on enchantment. Uh, however, also in this segment is a discussion on how possession can be the result of traumatic experiences or uh, sexual experiences where there's a lingering mental energy which either draws an external entity to the individual or feeds an obsession until it grows into such an entity itself. This is important because similar heightened emotional states to that original trigger event may be needed to return to in order to confront or disperse this entity or reprogram the mind of the subject to eliminate that obsession. Uh, when it comes to the removal of an entity from space, Carol again identifies two types of situations, the first being what he calls a sham, um, not to be confused with a hoax or a lie. This is a situation in which it is not the place that needs to be cleared out, but the individual who is externalizing their own obsession or possession, um, as it were. In these cases, Carol seems to recommend performing the banishing um, as a symbolic act with the individual who is the host to the entity as a participant in the exorcism. In this case, the magician actually makes the participant the target of the exorcism while putting up the illusion that they are banishing entities from the house, yacht, private boat, jet, whatever it is. I'm available to perform exorcisms on your yacht, by the way. Just hit me up. In other cases uh, where uh, a place or object is actually being haunted by some kind of entity, a doom house, if you will, in this case, one should consider trapping the entity rather than banishing it. This can be done using a variety of objects, such as magnetized iron, quartz crystals, etc. Um, remember Kevin's quartz is good for blank. First, you'll need to essentially stalk the entity using some kind of divination method, typically a form of scrying in the dark or um, using smoke, or uh, even low doses of hallucinogens can sometimes work. Um, just be careful with that one. Then when the entity is located, uh, you're going to perform sort of 
some kind of ritual entrapment and plunge its prison into the space where the entity is. Once trapped, the item can be uh, disposed of or burned or saved for the use of enchantment or as a battery or of sorts. This is kind of what happened with the... Uh, the Jin in Wishmaster, if you follow the series long enough, right, he's trapped inside, a, I think it's like a giant ruby or something like that. Supposedly, also, this is what uh, King Solomon did in the Bible with uh, the demons um, that he summoned to help build the Temple of Solomon. They were bound to some kind of vessel, and eventually he like sunk them in the sea or something like that. So if you're into all that uh, super ceremonial stuff, um, you know, you can get uh, into using the Solomonic Circle and the triangle, uh, the Triangle of Art, and all the Geodia stuff. Then again, if you're if you're super into all that, you're probably also going to be using the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the Pentagram, and all that stuff. So you know, it's not really my jam, so I'm I'm not teaching you guys all that. You can do an invocation in a variety of methods, such as mask work, which we'll talk about later on. That minimizes the danger of direct spirit possession. Um, and it sort of makes it easier to step away from things, uh, when you're done. In addition to, uh, being good at banishing, having, uh, physical objects that associate with the work will, um, help it be easier to mentally separate when the operation is complete. All right, before we move on, I want to reiterate that this is not to be attempted by novice practitioners and certainly should not be undertaken outside of a group setting where there are um, those present able to help keep each other safe and secure. I think it is possible to do this type of work safely as a solo practitioner, but it requires a good anchor, solid banishing techniques, and lots of experience and practice. This is some advanced stuff and it's really worth reading about experimenting with um and doing but definitely not if you're um i guess a baby occultist or baby witch read this one or listen to this one and then let it boil in the back of your brain for a while while you practice and get better at what you do and then deal with this later that said, there are some basic types of invoking everyone should probably start practicing right away, especially if you're into the Chaos Magic approach. Um, you know, I'm not going to teach you this because it's it's not my material to teach, but I've mentioned several times in the past there's a thing called invoking the soul resonance, which is a technique talk, taught by uh, Arch Trader Blue Fluke in the Cartoon Guide to Chaos. Um, I would highly recommend this as a first invoking ritual, although it isn't invoking an external entity or idea it's sort of creating a unification of yourself um and so again you can find the arch traders text online for free uh if you're into that you can pause now go look that up or you know, make a note of it in your journal look it up later so some history here uh spirit possession has been a concept since probably the earliest religious practices. I know the ancient Egyptians believed that the spirits of humans and animals who died a violent death could linger and take host of others. Many African groups believe in spirit possession, and this is an important concept within Haitian voodoo, um, where the ver some various deities or uh, loa can take possession of a host to deliver prophecy and do other things. Uh, according to many of the practitioners, 
the individual will have no real memory of the experience taking place as if they were, you know, completely blacked out. Uh, spirit possession is found in nearly every culture and has um, some, any culture that has some kind of religious tradition, which is really every culture I can think of. Um, the Oracle of Delphi was believed to be possessed by the spirit of Apollo and deliver prophecy. Uh, it's also, she was likely huffing a lot of nitrous oxide. Even Christianity has the belief of demonic possession or or even becoming uh, overcome by the Holy Spirit, right? In many Eastern spiritual traditions, it's believed that one can channel a spirit to deliver prophecy. Even elements of Western uh, spiritualism contain practices of spirit possession, such as channeling and automatic writing. Uh, it depends on the culture and the context, uh, if this is seen as positive or negative, if positive and negative are even really a thing, um, you know, trying to avoid that dualistic Aristotelian thinking. Uh, maybe it's both and neither simultaneously. Maybe. Invocation can also be used to embody sets of ideas and principles. It's not explicitly about divination or acquiring Faustian levels of illumination, uh, though that does sound rather nice sometimes. I think they make a joke about this in one of the Cast, Ma uh, cast Magic episodes of Last Podcast on the Left, uh, probably Henry, um, about invoking Batman uh, so you can have his attributes for a period of time or something like that. But, uh, you know, Divination does seem to be one of the, the major common uses of this, but to circle back to comic books, uh, the character Gideon in uh, Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, which, by the way, is uh, another name used for the Loa in Voodoo. The Invisibles is also a, a reference to the Loa, um, but the character Gideon uh, invokes John Lennon for information earlier on in the series, again, invocation used for uh, for prophecy or divination there. All right, so let's jump into some of this stuff. Uh, we'll start out with the drawing down the moon ritual. Remember, this is from Wicca, and drawing down the moon is a form of spirit possession or deity possession practiced in a variety of Wiccan traditions. In some ways, it's very similar to being ridden by the Loa and Voodoo uh, and similar traditions. In this ritual, uh, the goddess takes hold of the witch within the circle. Uh, typically, this is the high priestess and speaks through her delivering all manner of blessings and prophecy. Uh, there's even the opportunity for those present to communicate directly with the deity present. Now, there seems to be some disagreement about the use of terminology and uh, gendering language. Some groups use the term drawing down the moon, regardless of the gender of the deity or individual being possessed, while others prefer to use the term drawing down the sun when the deity and uh, possessed are perceived masculine. So if you're drawing down the, the horned god or something like that into the, the priest rather than the goddess into the priestess, it would be sun versus moon, depending on your group. Like I said, some just use drawing down the moon as the phrase, regardless of who's involved. 
there's a great diversity among methods of achieving this, though typically a form of excitatory gnosis is employed to reach a trance-like state at which repetitive, rhythmic, mantra-like prayers are used to invite the deity to embody the host. While the specific methods varying from tradition to tradition, uh, Wikipedia does mention, it is usually done during a private full moon esbit where the goddess is represented by the moon and rarely at public gatherings. As Mankey points out, and he's one of uh, my sources for this uh, episode here, um, he points out in his article that this ritual is not very common nowadays because of how taxing it is on those individuals as well as uh, requiring a great degree of training, practice, preparation, and uh, recovery after execution. Uh, this said, if we are going to go for sort of a hybrid chaos magic approach, um, there are some details in Phil Hines connect condensed chaos that I think may be beneficial to our understanding of the invocation process, but we'll come back to that later on. Sticking with Mankey for now, there are a number of levels of deity possession that can take place during this specific ritual. These levels, or degrees as he calls them, depend on the degree of control um, the vessel is willing to relinquish, the vessel being the, the person allowing themselves to be uh, possessed, um, the whims of the gods themselves, and uh, our general mental state. Other factors that affect this are how close we manage to get to Gnosis, or in other words, how deep in trance we really are. Sometimes you will experience the presence of the deity you are trying to draw in. Other times you can be fully overcome. You could, in theory, draw down or draw in any entity you, you believe in. And in the chaos magic approach, even non-existent fictional archetypal figures um, you associate strongly with. So in many rituals, it is common to call the deity to be present, and they may or may not do so. So when choosing to, they usually do not become noticeable right away, not immediately. Um, some people may claim they feel their presence, um, but that is often about it. Drawing down is different as the, the deity takes a very active front and center role in the activities at hand. But even then, calling on the deity to be present, there are various options. Perhaps you call them to be present, um, but outside of your circle, um, in this case, evoking rather than invoking. They're there. They may be lending energy or um, appreciating your veneration to them. Uh, you can also call them to be present in your circle, but not to take hold of a person. Uh, as Menke again points out, having this deity-specific energy raised within the circle can cause a big shift in the cognition, um, the mindset of the people participating. One issue, however, and we mentioned this before, is the fact that you, you're entirely at the will of this deity when you do invoking. If you invite them um, even into your circle, um, someone could spontaneously become host to the deity if they're within that protective barrier, right? Um, I've actually heard uh, some difference of opinion um, about how effective a circle of protection really is. Uh, some people feel that 
some people feel like the protective circle is this like ultimate barrier that that cannot be crossed and uh others feel that um it's only protective against certain i guess uh degrees of powerful entities and then some people think it doesn't really matter at all i think again this highlights the importance of really knowing one's own uh belief structure um and deciding what symbols to use and really understanding the entity that you're going to be working with and what degree of protection you need or what degree of or what symbols are appropriate to ward off this uh, entity. Of course, if you're trying to summon an entity that you are uh, afraid might actually hurt you, then you might reevaluate what you're doing in the first place. Of course, in the case of possession and the like, you you have to open to these experiences or else they they can't really ever happen to you. Uh, if you're not, if it's not part of your operating system, uh, these possibilities are filtered out or bypassed um, by your consciousness. Again, if they're not part of your operating system, then invoking is not going to work in the first place. So all of that's well and good, but how do we actually call down a deity? Mankey doesn't tell us, and very few others seem to want to give us more than this is what the ritual is. Uh, either it's for safety or uh, guarding the right that's been passed down from priestess to priestess, or uh, it's a complete fabrication. Who knows? I've I've managed to come across a few how-tos, but they seem extremely limited. Um, either way, here's basically the bare bones to it. So you stand facing the full moon and give thanks. You need to ground and center. Stand with your arms up to the sky and chant something similar to I invoke the goddess three times. And then you're supposed to feel the goddess energy filling you up. And from there you do magic. This isn't really the drawing down the moon that we've just been talking about. This is more like asking for the goddess's blessing in adding energy to your work. I found many other sources claiming to teach you how to draw down a deity in the system, and they all centered around uh, some kind of chant that uh, were very nonspecific and or nonspecific beyond the words that were spoken. They were just, this is the chant you do, and they didn't provide any more detail uh, beyond that. I do know that uh, chanting can help bring us into a state of single-focused uh thought closer to gnosis. Um, this is sort of mantras for this. Um, and chanting is used in a lot of different rituals, um, especially repetitive, ongoing chanting to sort of drumming and dancing kind of things to enter into a, a gnosis-like state. But it often has uh, to be much more than uh, three times as some of these rituals that I came across uh, presented. And certainly, they can't be long, elaborated prose, as I've seen in other sources where it's, you know, you would have to have a book in front of you reading it, more like a, a long spell or something like that. From my understanding and experience, that will not work for invocation either. Um, that said, from my understanding, there's a significantly more, there's significantly more that goes into invocation, perhaps uh, since the high priestess in the Gardnerian traditions 
uh, have forged such a strong relationship to the goddess, they can just uh, make this request and have it be so. It is certainly true that the closer your relationship is with an entity, the easier it is to uh, communicate with, work with, and ultimately invoke. But uh, we know that there's more to it, and perhaps we can get or glean a method by taking a look at how some of the other traditions have accomplished this kind of invocation in their systems. All right, one of those systems that we can look at is uh, being written by the Loa, and this comes uh, from Voodoo or Vodou. Um, so I want to start off looking at that, and I've said many times, if you're a practitioner of Vodou, uh, Vodun, Voodoo, or even if you're a Hoodoo practitioner, there's a Hoodoo practitioner out there, and I know that is an entirely different thing. Um, I, I would love to interview you. I'd love to talk to you and have you on the show. And if I get something wrong or pronounce something wrong, uh, please correct me so I can do it right. So anyway, here's my basic understanding of how the ritual that leads to being ridden by the Loa is done. Uh, so the rite opens up with a sacrifice. Often this is a blood sacrifice in the form of a farm animal, a chicken, a goat, something like that. This helps to establish a connection with the spirit world. Prayer is given by the individual leading the ceremony, the priest or priestess. Uh, this is followed by individual prayers or requests, petitions. And next, the assembled group uses fast-paced rhythmic drumming, dancing, and chanting to work themselves up into a Gnostic state. Uh, while this is taking place, the priest or priestess will draw the veve or sigil of the loa they wish to call into the ritual on the ground. Uh, I've usually seen this done in chalk. And all throughout this time, there are other offerings being made to uh, the loa or ancestors in some cases. Um, ancestors are called on in similar ways. Um, and these are going to vary based on what the spirit you're trying to call in favors. Um, but whiskey and rum are really common and uh, tobacco smoke are really common offerings as well as money. If the spirits being called accept and take host of a person, that person usually or well, often drops to the ground in a sort of seizure-like state. Um, those around them will usually assist them in getting them back to their feet, at which point there will be a significant difference in the person um, as they're possessed by this loa. People may change in personality entirely, taking on um, the personality of, of that loa uh, welcomed in. They may deliver prophecy, they may speak in tongues or engage in um, a wide variety of other behaviors. Uh, at some point, the leader of the ritual will destroy the veve of the loa. And I don't know if this itself is um, a significant form of banishing and the loa leaves or if there's uh, another form of banishing or if you know the loa just leaves when it's ready to. Um, my understanding and knowledge of of voodoo is pretty limited, um, but maybe um, post-quarantine I'll take a trip to New Orleans and learn what I can. I'm very interested. Moving on, let's touch on ceremonial magic. We can see here uh, an example of uh, what a group invocation of a specific deity or extraplanar entity might look like. In modern magic, Kriegig presents 12 pentagrams for invoking and banishing 
um, the five Western elements. That's so fire, water, earth, air, and spirit. Uh, that's one invoking and banishing for fire and so on. There's two elaborating and two closing for spirit. In addition, he includes the supreme invoking ritual of the pentagram. I, again, don't particularly like this ritual um, as some of the words are drawn from Enochian magic uh, developed by Kelly and Dee, and uh, there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that they were operating as spies and were fabricating a great deal of their occult work. Um, the Enochian language, for example, has no historical basis earlier to their work. Of course, uh, from a chaos perspective, right, nothing is real and everything is permitted. So if that's your jam, by all means, rock it. Um, they supposedly channeled it directly from angels, though it's fairly well established that Kelly, at least, was a con artist prior to all this. Um, he was, you know, punished for his involvement in uh various schemes including counterfeiting and forgery and and things like that but moving on if we're we're going to speak of ceremonial magic we really can't ignore the key of solomon um the lesser key in particular which uh published under the title of the geodia or geodia you know i'm not going to go into excessive detail on these types of practices uh if you're really interested in conjuring extra planar entities using ceremonial magic you can acquire a copy of one of these books um and you know also be really well versed in banishing rituals uh probably following along with krieg's book modern magic um well before doing so he's presented the lesser and the supreme invoking rituals of the pentagram uh, which he's quick to point out should always be followed by the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram of course it comes with all the symbolism and chants and made up enochian language you could ever dream of and yeah so if this is your cup of tea drink it down don't leave a drop i'll be in the corner staring at a mirror trying to invoke myself which, speaking of invoking yourself, brings us to chaos magic. As longtime listeners of the show will have gathered at this point, chaos magic offers a highly individualistic approach that requires the individual practitioner to figure out what is going to work best for them through, you know, experimentation and researching a wide variety of different practices and traditions and reviewing their notes from the past and engaging in the scientific method. In addition to the divinatory aspects of invocation, one could also employ these methods for various aspects of ego magic. Uh, when I said I'd be in the corner looking into a mirror and trying to invoke myself, that was only partly in jest. Carroll has referred to invocation as a method through which various aspects of personality can be added to the magician to buffer or improve upon them, specifically improving areas that may be lacking. Perhaps you might want to bring back aspects of yourself that you had as a child but feel you've lost touch with. You could attempt to invoke an earlier incarnation of yourself. Um, you might want pictures of you from that age around when you do so, or a toy, or who knows. Hein makes the point that invocation is one of the most widely used magical techniques, and to get the best from it requires some ability in visualization, use of voice, awareness of the use of posture and gesture, kinesthetic memory, 
practice in various routes of gnosis, relaxation, and self-awareness. By using invocatory techniques, you can give more prominence to shadow self by bringing it to a full awareness. You can invoke an entity about which you know comparatively little in order to gain insight into the nature of its character. Another use of invocation is to boost your capacity to perform at various acts of magic. Now, Peter J. Carroll gives a, a pretty good rundown of what a proper ritual should look like in Libranol, uh, where he writes the following. The actual method of invocation may be described as total immersion in the qualities pertaining to the desired form. One invokes in every conceivable way. And he goes on to describe how every aspect of the ritual space should be uh, representative of the force to be drawn in and every human sense should be engaged in possible symbols, sigils, iconography, sense, sounds, and so forth associated with the, the force must be present. We discuss all of this in a whole lot more detail in uh, the episode Making Your Own Magic from season one of the show. Uh, one also has to work themselves up into a Gnostic state and then um, they perform actions such as sacrifices or design a specific ritual such as to draw in that force that you are uh, trying to connect with. This may involve a sort of spoken invocation or even uh, bloodletting as his example in uh, page 43 of Libranol. Uh, that said, I obviously don't advocate for self-harm or harming another. Um, if you are experiencing feelings of self-harm or harming others, please do not hesitate to seek the assistance of a mental health professional. Legal basis covered. On with the show. So the way you choose to conduct an operation is going to depend on the unique circumstances of the work you're trying to do. What kind of relationship do you have with the thing that you are trying to invoke? If it's something you've been working with for a while and have built a relationship with, it's probably going to be easier for you to tap into. Uh, you might not really need help after a while as it gets much easier the more you practice. If you're going to begin uh, working with something new, it may be helpful uh, to really go all out with an elaborate ritual at least until you get that relationship established. Um, but I want to point out something that uh, Hudu Sen Moise uh, makes very clear in his book Working Conjure, and that is that in the Hudu practice, um, also known as Conjure or the Work, um, as well as many others, or really all practices I know of, when asking or petitioning a spirit for a specific work, a, a bargain is struck, right? You kind of make a deal with that spirit. And when you receive the thing you ask for, you must pay tribute for it. And if you fail to do so, that thing that you asked for can be taken away just as swiftly as it came. Uh, this is often more of a, a thing uh, when working evocation, but occasionally when we embody an entity, we're asking for a particular favor or need its power for something. Uh, we must be respectful of it, as I've mentioned before, and, and give back and give thanks as well. Uh, think of the law of conservation of mass and energy in physics. There's a, a give and a take. If you receive something from somewhere, it came from somewhere. And you also should be giving back or 
you know, you can think of that old HBO show Carnival where the main character heals someone and when he does so, uh, something somewhere else dies, right? Not too long ago, I started taking an EDM production class offered by uh, Deadmau5 and uh, he states, if you're nervous about getting on stage, wear a mask. And throughout history, masks have been integral in uh embodying characters um for acting for war and for magic and this uh can be seen in the concept of uh war paint or the makeup of mimes and clowns uh helmets um and visors of medieval soldiers especially among the samurai and the masks and and makeup of japanese kabuki theater uh one of the safer methods of invoking within the chaos magic system um, though I believe it actually uh, came from a variety of African tribal techniques, is something called mask working. And the idea is to create or find a mask that embodies the character you want to draw into yourself. So I'm going to break down mask work for you uh, just a little bit. So masks can be thought of in a few different ways. Uh, one way is to think of it metaphorically as a personality or set of traits uh, you wear in a given situation. The person you are at work with or around um, your parents or in-laws is likely very different from the person you are when you're out with your friends or alone with yourself. Um, that is my understanding of masks in general. As Phil Hine puts it, the one world dream of enlightenment is fragmented into worlds colliding and worlds apart. We don masks and enter different reality games, the social worlds layered through each other through which we pass each day. If you have experience with acting, either the traditional method or uh, those personalities built through the art of a stage or street magician or uh, personas of a comedian, you're at least somewhat familiar with getting inside a new mask. This essentially uh, is what cast magicians are doing when they talk about belief shifting. Um, it's not dissimilar to method acting, really. Now, the second way of thinking about masks is in the literal sense. This is where a whole lot of power is. Among the myriad of magical traditions among the First Nations people, especially in Polynesia and Africa, masks were considered objects of immense power that required uh, great care in use and keeping. Often they were not uh, stored in the open, um, so they could not catch someone's gaze. And as Hine points out, both tribal shamans and modern drama teachers impress upon their students that the mask have their own personalities. And when a mask is donned, the personality of the wearer is overshadowed by the mask. And once the wearer becomes uh, used to this idea, a trance-like state may ensue where the spirit of the mask takes over. As a magical object, the purpose of the mask is to drive out the individual's personality and allow the spirit to take over. Both overshadowing and full possessions may be experienced in working with masks. It is not so much that you wear the mask, but the mask wears you. 
So in some senses, masks may be thought of as a safer method of invocation. However, in some cases, uh, as mentioned above, full possession and the option of removing the mask is uh, sometimes taken away from the magician who ends up in the back seat of their own vehicle. This is where uh, practicing the art uh, with a trusted friend or small group can be beneficial. Hein goes into much more detail about how mask working can be done in the later sections of Condensed Chaos, and I highly recommend giving that a read if you are interested. As a sort of side note, I suppose, um, you know, shit's really intense here in the United States right now. Uh, a friend who immigrated here from Russia and grew up during the collapse of the Soviet Union, who says things are uh, happening in the socio-political world in a very similar way as things that happened there. And as a history teacher, I see a lot of parallels between uh, the state of the nation and what was going on in the Weimar Republic as Hitler was ascending to power. Uh, you can use invocation to draw in whatever type of energy you need to do uh, whatever work you need to do, uh, whether that is uh, healing from trauma or healing from illness or uh, drawing in pure seething hatred to hex your enemies. Not that I'm suggesting you do so. Um, invocation can be used for those purposes. Now, for your homework. Your homework for this week is to write an invocation ritual. You don't have to attempt it, but it is never a bad idea to practice composing ritual. Start with the entity or concept you want to embody. Jot down everything that's associated with it. Elements, colors, sounds, imagery, avatars, scents, emotions, you name it, all of it. Write it down. After that, um, see how you can work these components into an invocation ritual and then write out the words to be said, the actions to be done, etc. Remember to start with grounding and banishing and all the classic trappings of your general ritual work. Then build the energy throughout the ritual to a crescendo at which you invoke this concept. Um, from here, um, do what you need to do, um, or at least write about it. And then uh, begin the descent of the ritual towards the resolution, which ends with banishing and deconstructing the temple, etc. And uh, if you love the show, please consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash FG2TO. Um, we have lots of fun premium content there. Um, it's set up as pay what you can, $1 minimum. Uh, there are no tiers. You get everything that I put up there. I have a digital grimoire on the way. Um, finishing uh, up a book club that was started with my former co-host uh, on quantum psychology. Oh, that grimoire is going to be a, uh, a constantly updated thing. So uh, over time, as time goes on, there will be updates to it and uh, uh, new information, uh, hopefully on a regular basis. I'd like to do it at least once or twice a month. So uh, you, there will be new spells and rituals and fun little things uh, for you to play with. If you ever want to shoot me a question, you can join the community page, Fellow Travelers, off the main Facebook page on Facebook. Um, you can follow the show on Instagram at Fool's Guide. Um, or you can just drop me a line at Fool's Guide, the number 2, the occult at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers. Take care.